I have this sort of theory that for me, like when I was running product, I would do it for four or five years and then move on to the next. And I think at four or five years, it started to feel a little been there, done that to me, which compelled me to try something new. Or in some cases, I was no longer going to be the right person to take the company to the next stage. Anyways, sometimes I, I wonder about that for myself. Am I as motivated to do a new talk? Now I know I can do it. Like three or four years ago, like, can I do a new talk? I have no freaking idea. So when the learning opportunity starts to drop, sometimes it's a signal to me that I need to try something new. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, we're going to do something a little different. Twice a year, I meet with my personal board of directors. That includes Gibson Biddle, the former chief product officer of Netflix, and Melissa Perry, author of The Bill Trap. We talk and share and review progress, challenges, and mistakes we've made, hold each other accountable, but also define what personal growth and business growth means for us in the year ahead. So this show is a recording of that conversation that we like to share openly with you. So listen in, let us know what you think, and even maybe share some feedback with me on social. Reach out and let me know what you think. All right. Hello and welcome, everybody, to another personal board of directors. My name is Barry O'Reilly, and today I'm going to be joined by two of my favorite people, Melissa Perry and Gibson Biddle, to sort of share a little bit of a review of our working life over the last six months. And this has been a really fun sort of experiment that started out with actually emails back and forth would give uh, to talk, share some of the things that we were working on. And then he had a great idea to say, well, instead of us just sending emails, why don't we talk about it? And even better, why don't we invite more people to be part of it? So I am now delighted to welcome two of my favorite friends, Gibson and Melissa to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Melissa, how are you? I'm doing good. Good to see well, you, Yeah, no, it's great to see you too. Right. So it's always fun to sort of do this show. Literally, it's a chance for us to sort of share some of our lessons learned over the last couple of months. The format we go for is generally a quick sort of round robin where we all share and interview one another using a really great model called the camp model that was devised by Gibson as a way to sort of check in how things are going. So, Gib, do you want to share a little bit about what the camp model is and what inspired you and, and what the different aspects of it are? Sure. So the camp model is pretty simple on a scale of zero to 10, where zero sucks and 10 is great. How do you feel about the overall quality of your job and career? That's the top line question. And then for the C-A-M-P part, C is about community. Do you enjoy working with your boss, your peers at your company? Do you feel connection to the customers that you serve? The A is all about autonomy. So do you feel you have the opportunity to set your own direction? The M is about mastery, and the simple question there is, are you learning? And then the fourth is purpose. So do you feel your a connection to the work that you're trying to do? Do you feel like it's going to help dent the universe in some way? So that's the uh, camp model. It always starts with scale of zero to 10. I generally want everybody that I work with to have an eight, nine, or a 10. Six or seven, I can usually figure out ways to help get them to an eight eventually. It's kind of a long-term question. So, you know, you might have a bad day, but I kind of want to know over the last three months or so, 
you know, what's the overall quality? And for all of these, I, I want people to assess on a scale to zero or 10. I find it provokes a good conversation. I hope it will do that today. Brilliant. All right. Okay, so for some people who might be the first time you've ever dialed into this, I'm just going to get us all to introduce ourselves a little bit. I'll go with Gib first, because after Melissa introduced herself, I'm going to start asking her questions about uh, her review on the camp model. So Gib, do you want to just share a little bit about your background of people, then Melissa, then we'll dive in. Sure. So in my career, which I'm on the end of it, my credibility comes from being a product leader at, at Netflix and at Chad. I experimented with three-day-a-week jobs as a product leader at Metro Mile, NerdWallet, and Life360. That went really well. And now I'm really a teacher. So I teach outside the classroom. I do talks, workshops, and executive events all over the world. This past year, I transitioned virtually. I do a fair amount of writing as well. And that's me. Brilliant. All right. Okay. And what about you then, Melissa? Will you share a little bit about yourself? Should you introduce yourself first before we... Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. I actually should probably tell you who I am. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, again, great to meet everyone. My name is Barry O'Reilly. At the moment, my main focus is working on a venture studio that I've started called Nobody Studios. We're trying to do 100 companies over the next five years. We're going to be the first venture studio to actually offer equity crowdfunding. So anyone with a few hundred bucks is going to be able to come venture investor. And we're going to be launching that in the next couple of weeks. So look out for that. I've written a couple of books the Lean series and another one called Unlearn. And primarily just, I really enjoy building products and been coaching for a while, but it felt like I needed to get back building. But uh, I'll share plenty about that as we go along today. So bye, Melissa. Let's hear from you and then let's get in, getting stuck in. Cool. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa Perry. I'm the author of Escaping the Build Trap. I am also a product management educator. So pretty much everything I do revolves around that. I am branching out a little bit more to get my hands a little bit more dirty too. So on the education side, I started Product Institute, which is an online course for product managers in 2016. Continue to grow your self-paced online learning there. I run also CPO Accelerator, Chief Product Officer Accelerator for product leaders who want to become executives. So that's a cohort-based application-only, more hands-on program that I really enjoy to help level up experienced product professionals. And then I also teach the PM 101 course at Harvard Business School. In addition to those things, I am also a board member of Forsta, which is the leading market research data and insights platform. And I just joined as an advisor to Dragon Boat, which is a phenomenal new product in the product operations space that really helps you understand your portfolio management and plugs into Jira very well. So I'm I'm passionate about that spot too. So that's a little bit about me. Brilliant. All right. So great to have everybody on. This is always fun and uh, lots of great debate that we have. So I get to interview Melissa, which is fun. And then we'll round robin around and, and ask each other questions. So going to camp, the camp model. So overall, Melissa, on a scale of zero to 10, what did you score yourself overall? And then we'll dive into the, the different aspects. I did a seven. I did a seven. Seven. Oh. I also will say I added, and added a letter to the camp model for me personally, because <laughs> so, everybody should do it. This is how yeah. the models evolve. Go so ahead. I made it camps. <laughs> so the S and the N though, for me, really stands for scale because I have been looking at what do I do? And we were kind of just talking about this before we jumped on. But in the, if you saw me in the last board of directors meeting, I was talking a lot about how I burnt out pretty hard during COVID while I was scaling a consultancy. And I'm trying to focus on things that scale. 
where it's not me working 24-7. So my my skill really stands for, do I do things that help more people? Do I do things that scale to help more people? So how can I take on bringing the stuff that I do to more people? And then I'm also looking at like, am I working 24-7 or am I spending my time wisely and investing in things that can reach more people? So I'm trying not to overbook myself. That's been a big, big goal of mine personally for the last year. Great. No, I love it. All right. So just to dive into a few of the more community, like enjoying you know, working or connected to the community and customers you serve, what did you score there? I scored a six. This one's been a struggle for me. I think since we got into COVID land, I used to get a lot of my community out of going to events and conferences. And we just haven't had a lot. I was kind of bummed. It was supposed to be my first like in-person workshop in Switzerland in December and it got canceled because of COVID. We, mm-hmm. Well, we moved it to May. So I'm excited to go back in May. But I was really looking forward to it more than I thought I was. I was very excited to like just be in person and discuss it with people. I've had some wonderful, you know, Zoom conversations, but it's not the same. And I, I look at like my early career and I learned so much just by being at conferences with other people, by talking to other people, seeing what they do. And I, I miss that getting out of the world and seeing things that you didn't know that you didn't know. And there hasn't been as much of that. Like I can read or whatever, but I, I like connecting with people. I like learning from people better than that. Yeah, no, I had a chance just a few weeks ago to do my first in-person event with Next Era Energy in Miami. Mm-hmm. And wow, it felt sort of odd, great at the same time, I have to admit, you know, and like being with people, as you say, is such a, that's so much energy from the community when you're spending time with different folks. It resonates a lot. I expected to lose that by not going in person. I'm scanning the list of comments. I mean, I see Twyapi from Paris, Duncan from BC, Mark Abraham. These are all people that I kind of established relationships online. So what are you not getting with virtual? Here's my theory. What you got with in-person was the relationship with your peer group, all the other speakers. Is Is that it? Yeah, part of it. I met a lot of people through conferences too. And I feel like when you run your networking and your social life through a Calendly link, it's a very different experience than uh, grabbing a beer with somebody at the bar at a conference, right? So that, and like, like I said, still talk to a bunch of people online, still like jump on the call, just like, I think I called Barry. I was like having a bad day and Barry <laughs> called me and we talked about it. Like, like I still get those types of moments, I think from the people I know, but it's been like meeting new people too, right? Like I, I found that before COVID every year, I got to add more and more people to the group of people I got to learn from and know and follow. And and I always use Twitter for that. So like I still use Twitter for that piece in that area. But there is something that I do miss about like just running into people at conferences. And I, I used to like run into these people I connected with on Twitter, never talk to them online, but talk to them for like hours a day on Twitter. And it was like, we were best friends. Like, oh my God, it's you. You're real. Like I didn't realize we never met before. Like this is weird. Can I add one thing to that too as well, Miss? The thing that actually really struck me was focus. Mm, that's because it. Yep. it wasn't like the end of the show and the, the Zoom got unplugged and you just went dead, mm-hmm. right? It was a gathering of a day on a very specific topic where I could see like what other people were thinking and saying and riff off. And it just felt very interesting. So I'd yeah. throw that one in as well. I'm also like, it's weird because like I love talking to people at conferences and stuff, but like I am the worst approach somebody out of the blue person, I don't do it. Like I won't just walk up to a stranger and start chatting with them. I'm not that type of person. So when you had conferences, it just felt like, okay, here's 
my place to like meet people. And I felt so comfortable like going up to people and meeting them. And I miss those types of social interactions where we could just get around and like have something to start the conversation. So that's and kind karaoke, of there. right? Yeah, so, and the karaoke. <laughs> all right. Let's keep yeah. rolling on you, right? Autonomy then. How, how did you score yourself there? Yeah, I scored a six on autonomy. And I think that's largely because a lot of my time this year has been teaching at Harvard, which has been great, but it's no longer me deciding like, when do I teach and what do I do? So that has taken up a huge chunk of my time. I've spent probably the majority of my time doing that in the past year. So my autonomy has definitely fallen from that. Like I don't get to make my own schedule. I got to be at class on time. I've got bosses. I've got students to like be beholden to. So yeah, that one slipped and it used to be pretty high. Although I also fell into that habit that I was talking about working 24 seven when I was doing everything with myself and that was not good either. So that I'm trying to figure out how to balance a little bit. I decided not to teach this spring and that definitely helps. So I used to teach all year round and now I'm only teaching in the fall, which is great because the class that I used to teach in the spring just doesn't make sense anymore. So it's bringing me a little bit more time to do projects with my students. They're like all starting startups or working for other companies. I get to coach them. I enjoy that a lot, but it gives me a little bit more flexibility, a little more autonomy on other things. All right. So mastery and purpose, what jumps out on these ones for you? Yeah. Mastery. What am I learning? That one's been a hard one. I think one thing that I've learned a lot and one of my highlights of this year was I joined the board of Forsta and I have really loved that. Gib was like surprised. I loved it as much as I did. I was delighted that you loved it <laughs> as much as you did. I do. I like that has been like a huge highlight of my year. I have so much enjoyed working with the Forsta team such interesting problems. And I think this is something that I was talking about before last year when I was talking about like, well, last April, I think when we talked or whatever, how I was shutting down the consultancy and it was it was hard to grow that. I didn't enjoy the people management aspects of it and the fact that you had to just keep scaling if you wanted to keep making more money. But what I missed from not consulting, and I haven't actually done any consulting this year whatsoever, which is interesting. It's the first time for a full year, I haven't done any type of consulting. I missed going deep on like, pure product problems, not like teaching product, but like, give me your product strategy and let's jive on it. And I got to do that with the board role. I also got to bring in one of my really good friends as a chief product officer. And we both get to brainstorm stuff together. And I learned stuff from him and he learned stuff from me. And we just get to work on like really cool problems. And the team has been awesome. Like investors are awesome. Team's awesome. I just like love that. I missed really like solving product problems. And that has been Fantastic. So I feel like that's my way to solve my product problems and like keep interesting things. And I don't have to do that. I'm learning through consulting. I can do that through board roles, through advisory roles, like with Dragon Boat too. So I definitely want to do more of that. And I feel like I'm learning a lot about the different markets and the way that we scale companies and, and you know, investing and stuff like that. And that has been very exciting. So on that side of mastery, that's great. I feel like it also keeps my skills fresh so I can figure out like how to teach it to other people later. But it's all the like application part of it. And then also through Harvard, I've been like learning how to teach better. I had to learn how to teach with the case method this year, my first time doing it. Do you want to explain a little bit about the case method is just oh for God. folks who haven't heard that? So different than the way I used to teach. But what basically is, is like Gib came in and was one of our speakers because there was a case on him at Chegg. So we basically, Harvard writes cases about a scenario that happened at companies in the past. And they're all true. They're not made up. They're all about real companies. And the students go in and they read about the scenario. So it could be basically like, I think Gibbs was like, Chegg is about to acquire this company, should they? Right? That's the question. Like, here's the whole background. This is what the company is going to do. 
here's what their product strategy is, here's where Chegg is. And then we basically ask the class, what should they do? And then they debate it. So then they go back and they start getting into it. And then you hone it into topics that they need to learn about. So this one was like product strategy, what should we learn about? Like, what are the requisites for doing this acquisitions? What do we have to think about when we actually acquire a company versus build it ourselves versus all those different things? So they have like learning objectives there. But as a teacher, what happens is like the class has a discussion and they can take it anywhere. And you kind of have to be like pulling them back in a little bit, making sure that they take away the big takeaways, but letting them kind of go and figure it out for themselves and then surfacing the aha moments and then bringing it back to like what they should take away from it. Nice. So what, what happened, Kip? Did you buy the company in the end or what? I think you did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, it was perfect, <laughs> right? Yeah, you did. We actually bought like six companies yeah. in, in six months. Gibbs uh, shocked everybody when he said that too. He yeah, was like, yeah, yeah. he was like, yeah, I mean, we bought it. We just bought like six other ones too. And they're like, what? <laughs> and he was well, like, our CEO yeah. was just like, yep, let's just do it. Let's buy them all. <laughs> and the point is the fastest way to experiment on different product vectors by a 5, 10, 30 person company. Anyway, yeah, fun case. Interesting. It was, cool. it was yeah, because yeah, I know Gib as well. When you teach, you often do choose your own adventure type style as oh, well. I right? love cases, but yeah, he did many cases. Melissa sort of brought it up. She has to fit into the Harvard stratus, right? Yeah. The, the way of life. I don't. So I actually taught for Stanford for three years. I know what that's like, and so you do lose your autonomy. And after three years, I I stopped doing it. If you know me, I do do tons of cases, but I don't have to write them up in advance. I do them on the fly. It's great fun. I love it. So anyways, I empathize with the loss of autonomy you had at Harvard. On the other hand, it's a huge credibility builder to say you're a Harvard HBS. Like I I went in there knowing I was going to lose the autonomy, right? So it was like a deliberate choice. So it's just that, you know, that's a six, but that was a purposeful six. Like I made it, you know, I made it a six. I manifested that. It's kind of like sad to lose your autonomy after having it for so long. But at the same time, I get all the things that I never would have been exposed to, right? Had I not taken that job or not gone there. So, you know, it it, it balances itself out. And I feel like I learned more than I lost from the autonomy part. And I still, I got more out of it. It was the worthy trade. And I think you have to do that. Like, I, I think about this sometimes too. I'm like, how long do I want to work for myself versus like, do I ever go back in house or do I build something myself? And those are things that, kind of run through my mind as I think about what to do. And yeah. autonomy, I feel like it's probably going to go like this for me. So it gives, gives like I'm at the end of the, my career and I'm like, I'm not quite there yet. So I'm, you are not. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to have a, a little roller coaster of autonomy until the end. So whatever. You get cool swag from Harvard. I don't get any free swag from Harvard, David. I pay for all my swag. Oh, <laughs> I wish I got better free swag. Yeah. You don't feel appreciated. That's one of my challenges. <laughs> yeah. Like, can I have a free parking space? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, well. To uh, wrap up, then Melissa's uh, mm-hmm. section, are you also added scale, right? Yeah. And so, what did you give yourself on a scale? And- yeah. So on the purpose one, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Like, gave myself a nine. I was like, everything I do right now, I want to do. I'm loving it. It's just more of like, how do I do more of the things that I love? And scale, I gave myself a seven though, because one. Harvard obviously doesn't scale to everybody because I have a class that's just Harvard. So that's the one thing that doesn't scale. But Product Institute continues to scale really well. We service thousands and thousands of product managers every year. I never thought it would just keep doing what it's doing, but it does. (laughs) So that has worked out very nicely. And every time we make new courses, they all are pretty well received. So um, my plan for this year is to spend more time thinking about like other skills that we need to develop and do stuff through that. 
CPO Accelerator, we are able to service about 60-ish people a year. So I feel like that's a pretty good scale. We do keep it locked down to 20 people. It's got a good cohort-based thing. The board work doesn't scale, but I enjoy it. And I feel like it's impact. Maybe I need to make this like scale versus impact, like making sure that both of those are in line. And if I have to think about like how much of my time is spent on scale work versus like deep impact work that maybe doesn't scale, I feel pretty well balanced right now. So yeah, no, it sounds like you set up your portfolio really well. It's nice to hear. And I am writing the product ops book as well, which I'm excited about. So that will scale. And I've, I've found that that helps with scale, like writing videos, anything that gets like the word out more about what I want to talk about. Product thinking, the podcast was the other thing that I do started this year. Love it. That was a big part about scale because I was getting so many individual questions about, Hey, I've got this scenario at work. Can you tell me what to do through email? But if I answer one person, it's the same question I get like 10 times a year. I'm like, how do I make sure that everybody can read this? And I was having a huge problem because of the burnout writing. Like I just couldn't bring myself to write, but I have no problem talking. So I um, started the podcast mostly for that. And then I got to interview cool people too. But I was like, how can I answer questions in a way where other people can listen to them? And I've really enjoyed that. And I think that's really helped with my my kind of scale mission so that I can keep uh, responding to people and keep hearing what they're curious about as well. That's been a big part of it. Amazing. Brilliant. All right. Can I ask ask a question, Melissa? If you rack and stack the things that you do from sort of top bang for buck, probably Mm -hmm. has a lot of leverage, a lot of scale, gives you joy to stuff at the bottom that doesn't. I mean, by the way, I'm delighted that consulting is no longer on the list. Yeah. And let's take HBS off the list. That's a total long-term play. It'll take you years (laughs) to figure it out. So what would you put at the top of your, feels like good emotional bang for buck? You know, it could be joy, it could be money. What's at the top of your list right now? Do you mean like out of the things that I do? Yeah, like could it be bored or is it the CPO accelerator work? I'm just, I'm forcing you to force rank them. I know, but like, what's my skill? Because I feel like joy versus skill is different. <laughs> I'm like, because um, like... Well, for instance, I pick up the joy from your podcast. I pick up the bo- yeah. the joy from your board work. I... You no longer have to worry about consulting, which wasn't giving you joy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So right, let's just use joy. I get a lot of joy from CPO Accelerator. That has been yeah. really fantastic. I've made so many new connections with VPs of product and we've had people go be CPOs. Like it's really cool. Like I had one woman who came to our first cohort. I've known her for a while. Her company was going through a merger with another big company. And she told me when she was joining, I'm worried I'm going to... She was a VP of product. She was worried she wasn't going to get the CPO position because there was another experienced man on the other side who's been a CPO before. And she went through the program and they promoted her to CPO. And she was like, I learned how to talk. I learned how to do all the things and I got it. And she's like, I'm so happy. And it was like, she knew she could do it. She just needed like a couple of the tools. And that's what makes me excited. Like I'm really passionate about like people becoming chief product officers and giving them an avenue for that. So that's given me a lot of joy. Say a lot of people do apply though and like half-ass their applications and I immediately yeah. throw them out. So if you were listening yeah. to it, you want to <laughs> I do not accept one word. I like it. Yeah. I had a somebody who was like a GM VP of product of like a really big, well known tech company, and he did that. And it was like, why didn't I get in? And I was like, you literally wrote one word answers for all of your questions. Like, I don't accept that. Cause like everybody who comes to CPO Accelerator, they put a lot of time in it. One guy in Australia who joined, he woke up at three o'clock in the morning every two weeks to join it. 
because he found that much value in it. And I was like, whoa, it's amazing. It's such a community and they all talk to each other and they all help each other. And I enjoy that so much. So I'm loving that. Product Institute is great. It's just that I didn't have a lot of time to invest in it last year because I had so many other things. So, but I feel like the things that I did do, I helped learn about what I want to do with it. So this year I'm like, I've got some pretty good ideas of what I could do to amp it up and get like really excited about that. So I started talking to our team and like, we're pretty, we're pretty pumped with that. So that should be pretty cool. Barry, should we, um, you in the hot seat? Okay. Barry, you know what to do, but overall scale zero to 10. I gave myself an eight this time around, which is good. You know, overall it was a pretty tough year. You know, starting a venture studio. This is funny, Gib, actually. Like one of the lessons I think you were reminded me of a while ago was to get back building. And I wasn't doing that. And I really missed that. But also like building equity in something for the long term. And it was sort of got me thinking about those things is like, how could I harness my skills in a way where I can contribute to something bigger than myself and actually build something that has longevity, that has a life of its own, that can grow and scale to Melissa's point actually on itself. And the funny thing is that sort of like came together, I suppose, in this concept of doing a venture studio, right? Which is the idea that you incubate and build early stage companies, you raise your own capital, you build the teams, you have your own ideas, and you go after and try and de-risk early stage businesses. So it's actually been a perfect sort of nexus for me of bringing, building, coaching, advising, building teams. That was super fun. Everything that stuff that was much newer to me was going out and like raising money, literally knocking on doors and talking to people about investing in a co- an early stage company that you're trying to build. You know, that was pretty fun and uncomfortable. So yeah, you know, we're one year in, we're still alive. That's success for a startup, is it? If you're still alive and, you cool. know, just this year trying to like do the equity crowdfunding, which I'm really excited about. If we'll be the first people to ever do that, which I'm very excited about. And See where we can go from there. Let's do a little rapid fire because you, you actually could hear you weaving the issues throughout. But nobody studios with a good impetus for improving your scores. So community, what's your number? Seven. That often came from haven't had much time with friends and family. I think COVID has actually been pretty hard. I'm like I'm a parent of two very young children, right? So we've we've a very brittle system in terms of someone gets sick or someone goes down or someone has to go home. Plus, both of us doing a startup. My wife works for the World Health Organization. She's a busy lady at the moment. So it's pretty brittle, right? And we don't live near any family. She's Australian. Go Aussies again. And, and I'm from Ireland, whoever didn't know. So we live equal distance, furthest possible away from both of our parents, which is always a great one. But, you know, I have also the, be- the upsides have been, though, joining some new communities. So the people I've met to the studio have been great. I actually joined uh, Hustle Fund's Angel Squad. So one of the things I wanted to learn more about was investing and angel investing as we built a studio. So Hustle Fund have this amazing syndicate called Angel Squad. And that's actually been another great chance to not only learn what VCs think about when they're investing in companies, but just a community of people in there is like top-notch, really fascinating, really supportive. So that's actually been a surprise. Yeah. Nice. Autonomy? Seven. I've got a boss now. Technically, I have a boss. And that is definitely new for me. I think it's like seven years since I technically had to report to someone. Both These are investors, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as Melissa said, it's uh, getting used to having a boss again was a, a bumpy first few months. That was kind of fun. Yeah, I'm getting there. I'll give myself seven. Got it. 
mastery. It sounds like you've been learning a lot. And like, again, I love that's the encouragement both of you gave me last time. You know, like it is new skills. I'm outside my comfort zone. I'm doing things I haven't done in a while. I'm like walking the talk in many ways, right? And making many mistakes and learning along the way. So it's been good. I feel eight. I could even ramp that up to nine or 10. Maybe next time we'll see. That's awesome. Okay. And then purpose. It's nine. It's really nine. You know, I feel like I was starting to fall asleep at the wheel with consulting. You know, I, I was getting into, my wife would joke that she could anticipate my answers to questions that clients would ask me. Like she'd be in the other room going, oh, I know your answer to this. This is the squeaky arm problem. And, you know, so, and like I said, I was missing building and getting back practicing a lot of this stuff. So yeah, it's good to be back. You know, I'm really, really enjoying it. It's hard work. I'm tired all the time. But like I jump out of bed in the morning and go, right, let's get into it. You know, let's get this done. And that's kind of worth it all. I think I'm alive again. Even my wife says I'm alive again. So that's good. That's great. I know the thing that you want help with, which is providing yourself with discipline to take more than five days off in a year. Melissa, can you go first on that? What, yeah. What would you say to Barry? Because I'm so freaking far out on this scale. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> You you have like skiing goals that I think helps when you're on a chairlift. Can't really take that many yeah. calls. So <laughs> that's one way to do you, it. How yeah. would you encourage Barry to be more disciplined? And he wants two things. He, he wants time to reflect and a little yeah. bit of free time. To, so yeah. he doesn't burn out. Go I got really disciplined with my calendar. And what I did last year, especially when I was feeling like massive burnout and not not doing well. Like I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was just like, especially when you get to that point, you're like, how do I do this? So I just started taking my calendar. First of all, I use Calendly for everything. I used to have an assistant and I just found that she couldn't run my calendar the way that I can run my calendar. So I use Calendly and then I just literally block out time. Like I take my Fridays and I'm like, nope, nobody talked to me on Friday. And I will make it like an intentful day where I'm like, now I'm like book writing happens on Friday. So I'm like, okay, I'll meet with Denise and we'll talk about the book, but that's it. I don't do other, any other things unless it's like friends on Friday, like something I'm going to get joy out of. And then whenever I do vacations and stuff, I have been just blocking out my calendar in advance, be like, thou shall not touch. And I found that going places where you don't get to be on your phone all the time and have really bad Wi-Fi works as well. So <laughs> like I've tried that. But yeah, I think it's like, make sure that like for me, at least having like one or two days blocked out on a rot- rotational period, I got to decide what I use those days for. Sometimes I was like, I want to work. I'm fine. I feel okay. Other days I was like, no, nah, today is going to be a brain break day. And I've literally like woken up sometimes and been like, I'm not in a good place right now. Like it's Tuesday and I just need like a couple hours to myself. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to do something. I'm like Tuesday, every day I block out until at least 10 or 10.30. Like I will not be online until 10 or 10.30. It's because I go to the gym, I have coffee. I like sit there and I try to figure out what I want to do. And I can't talk to anybody in that time. Like I need to figure out like get myself in order because I work all the other times anytime anyway. So I think it's like, that's what I do. I viciously like block out my calendar. I would I would try to do that. And also it's knowing like the world's not going to end if you're not there. But I had that problem with consulting where like I did try to take vacations and everybody called me on the vacation and they were like, and ultimately that's what made me burn out. And that's also what made me stop consulting is like, I go to my friend's wedding and I was getting calls that things could not be handled. And I had to step in and I was like, I thought I, I trained everybody on this stuff. Like, why can't it run without me just a little bit? And I had to redesign a lot of what I did to do that. 
Janice, it's fascinating. Bill Gates famously did the reading week or two weeks. Yeah. I mean, you could try something like that. My tactic is I have personal goals outside of business and career. Melissa referred to it and started taking this over the top. I tend to ski my age in days each year. So this year I'll turn 60. And so I'll ski 60 days. That forces me to carve out a lot of times. Now, I'm not suggesting you go as extreme as I. Can I ask you though, what I'd love to ask you though is like when you were chief product officer at Netflix or Clegg and like it's all hands to the pump and you know, you've got reeds breathing down your neck and you know, how did you manage that? You know, because that, like that, that's the grind. So the grind for us, so we're a two career household. My wife now works 16 hours a day. She's in biotech and as you get older, you have more impact. She's in the immune therapy area for Bristol-Myers Squibb. So and she's a leader. Anyways, at your stage, when I had two and four-year-old kids, we did invest in a nanny who, who continues to be part of our household in Burlingame. That was for us, it was like making an, an investment in college or you know, Kristen to become a doctor or me to go B school. The next thing we invested in was a nanny, and that was a great call. But we, we often didn't have a choice. I would have conversations with my wife, I'd say every two to five years, sort of, hey, I think there's this huge opportunity in front of us for me, and we're going to run at it. And I would get her buy-in for sort of sticking my head down for the next year or so. So, you know, sometimes hard work is really required. I always felt like it was healthy to take a week off per quarter. So I always did that. I always encouraged everybody who worked for me to take a week off per quarter. So there's some discipline there. So two things were the nanny was amazingly helpful to us. And then the second thing was one week off per quarter, no matter what. If my wife cancels a vacation, I'll, I'll, I'll kill her, right? <laughs> I mean, they're just immutable. You, you can't not do the thing you planned. So those are my two ideas relating back to when I had yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great to hear you both. Like what I hear you both saying is boundaries again and again, right? And Big time. I think that's sort of, it's easy to choose the, oh no, I've got to be there or I've got to answer to that. Like that's actually the easy choice I find, you know? And yeah, it's great, great feedback from you. So yeah, oh, thank you. And I'd say like one of the big things, like in the same system of blocking off your days on Calendly, plan a vacation so you got something to look forward to. Put it on the calendar like early and just be like, I'm taking off this week. This week worked for good. Right. And when you get there, like you decide, just keep it, like book somewhere to go. It's like, you can't cancel. <laughs> Cause then you're like, oh, I, I gotta go. I already booked it. I've got tickets. I got things, right? Like, and, and that's probably gonna help you remember to do that. I do not have kids, but everybody I know who has kids also says nannies are game changers if you can afford them, which is well, fantastic. They're expensive, but. We looked at them the way we looked at an investment cost. in college yeah. or med school. Yeah. Same way. It's um, like it's an opportunity cost thing too, where it's like if this is an investment in our stuff. But I thought of one other thing, which is all these numbers and rating systems. I think they're more a function of, you know, like I think I grade easier than you guys do. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> sometimes you just have to give yourself a break, right? Yeah. Like I cannot do it all. The, mm-hmm. the number of times in a day where I say to myself, I cannot do it all, it's probably five or 10 times. So just give yourself a little bit of break, a little bit of license. Yeah, no, fair enough. Kip's turn. Yeah, Kip. Okay. Gary, you know I know what to do, but I'm going to let you loosely guide me. I get to dodge this one. I think Melissa gets to ask the tough questions this time. Oh, that's time. right. Melissa. Yeah. 
All I right, really my turn. Go get him, yeah. Melissa. Get him. Okay. So overall, you give yourself a nine. How are you feeling? I did give myself a nine. That's correct. What do you rank that on? So I think I pivoted from in-person to virtually exceptionally well, exceptionally quickly. And there were two big changes in my life this year. The first, we did buy a house in Bend. It was sort of five years ahead of schedule. Bend's in the middle of Oregon. It's mountain town, skiing, backpacking, et cetera. But my wife decided we should do it because she could now work more remotely. And so that I had to do a job, which is buy a house, furnish a house, and I'm renovating a house in Burlingame, California. The other thing is I started to have problems with my voice. Melissa knows about this also, which is because I talked 140 talks, exec events, workshops the year before. You probably can't notice it, but I do. There were days where I was afraid I wouldn't be able to talk. So I'm in voice therapy. But the good news is I shifted back to only 70 talks. And the, the easiest way to, to lighten my schedule was I would only do paid gigs. So before I would do a lot of free, good for the world stuff, to sort of build awareness and trial. But now everybody's got to pay me if, if they want me to do a talk. Money's not that important to me, but I like people to value my time. And it was the easiest way not to talk too much. Anyway, so nine on the community, I've been shocked, but I do feel a strong connection to the community, even in an online setting. So I think, Barry, arguably, you and I have gotten to know each other better over time. Same thing with Melissa, quite frankly. You know, I scan the list. I mentioned some of the people's names I recognized in the messaging and chat. And these are all online connections. That's why if he knows that someday I'm going to use my bad French to do a French talk, right? Or Duncan knows about my whole new AT gear setup for backcountry. Autonomy, like I'm way out there. I'm a 10. I do what I want. It gives me joy. Mastery, I, I drop down to eight. Possible that I'm not doing enough new stuff as I sort of tried to cut down on my schedule. It's on my list to create a new data talk, a new data workshop. I'm so close to having a culture workshop. So I just have a culture workshop for mm-hmm. exact teams. I just haven't executed it. I learned a fair amount about writing through my Ask Gib product newsletter. And purpose, it's still for me, it's about enabling other product leaders to dent the universe. I've been pretty clear and consistent on that. And that, that gives me joy. My failed experiments, I decided not to do one-on-one coaching because it would clunk up my schedule. My failed experiments, I was trying to come clean with you. This is sort of a joke now between Melissa and Barry and I, but I've gone through another year without turning my product strategy series on Medium into a book. I did write a lot. (laughs) I can add laugh to that. I know, we'll come back to that. I did figure out how to get email addresses through my Ask Gib product mm-hmm. newsletter. When I write, I got 1,000 a month. And when I don't, I might get 200. Actually, this summer, I felt guilt-ridden that I wasn't doing an essay a week. That's when the voice came out and said, give, give yourself a break. You don't have to write an essay, which I, wait. So yeah. I took like three or four months off. Like the world does not end, right? So that was me sort of managing myself. Oh, the other joke is I've gone another year without improving my baby website, which is gibsonbiddle.com. It's not highly credible. Barry and Melissa and I chatted just before we opened this up to the public, but I said, you know what? In terms of what I do, making my baby website better is like an eight, okay? Writing a book is like an eight. 
Uh, like, I would I do a website over a book every day. I'll shut up and you can ask me questions. Go ahead. Yeah. No, so okay. So your lowest ranking though is mastery for an E, and you mentioned that you feel like you're doing the same things over and over again. Is there anything you you want to learn more about? Like what's kind of you know, your learning goal or something that you want to get better at? Because I haven't written a book before that is interesting. That's a, I feel like I'd learn a new skill. Okay? Yeah. And then I mentioned it lightly, but almost as a secret, I do a culture workshop. And I've done it like for 30 or 40 startups through different VCs. And I really like it because it gives me access to the CEO and the exec team. And you know, I don't want to be a consultant because that sucks up my time too. But I have a suspicion that I can really help impact, you know, the growth of companies with something like a culture workshop. So that's just a new experience for me. I guess I've learned this. I'm motivated by creative challenge. So doing a new culture workshop, writing a book, doing a new data talk or a new data workshop. Remember, I'm the freaking English major. I took a statistics course in B-School. Like doing a meaningful data talk or data workshop would be a big challenge for me. But I think I can do it. I think you can do it too. So it's like basically creating new stuff is what I'm hearing. Like you're like, I did the product strategy thing. I already put that on Teachable. I got that going on. But what's my next topic that I want to explore? Maybe it's something slightly different. Yeah, and my guess is that Culture won't be as big a sort of business or opportunity for me. Product's big, right? There's product leaders at early, late stage that need and want a lot of help. Mm-hmm. Culture is sort of touchy-feely, amorphous. I think it's hugely impactful, but that's not the natural thought of most CEOs or exec teams. So yeah. there's a little bit of evangelizing I have to do in advance. And that's what writing's about. I know how to define a world-class culture. I know what my medium series would be on it. I've outlined it. I just, I haven't sat down and given it the two to three hours a day over the course of a month to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, the thing I like to challenge Gib a little bit onto as well, is like last time we met, these were on your list last time. That's why we were winding you up, right? Fix the (laughs) website, write the book, right? And we've even got David Bland saying, do the website. It's easier than the book, right? So I've asked people online to actually help build you a website as well. So maybe you'll get a few engineers in in your inbox. Yeah, you can outsource that, Gib. You don't have to do the website yourself. Like there is a lot of people out there who will build you a beautiful website. Let me me reveal two things. I think I like being a little quirky, a little unpolished. Okay. (laughs) So that's part of the resistance. And if I fight back, I'm very good at not taking on too much, right? That's, good. That's true. Um, you were very disciplined. Yeah. But honestly, I think the book thing, because I'm going to turn 60 this year, now I'm almost getting into legacy territory. Right. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is the fun I part. Mean, yeah. And actually, the thing I love about the Medium series is it's live. People don't know it, but I'm updating it all the time. And I get comments and I got like 600 survey monkeys. Like you don't get that from a book. <laughs> So in part, my procrastination is making it better. I found that I got done writing my book and I'm not sure what Barry's experience was with this. And I went, I could have just done an online course because it's a lot more money. But like, I already had the online course before I wrote the book. I'm happy I did it. I'm writing another one for a reason. Um, It took me 
this long, what, three years, this will be the fourth year since I wrote, wrote that book. Um, yeah. to actually want to do it again. But now I'm That's like, nice. now it's like, once you do it once, you're like, okay, I have the pattern. I know the formula. I know exactly what to do. And I feel like 90% of writing your first book is figuring out how to actually do it. And then you can repeat it a little bit easier. But I do love that when anybody asks me like my philosophy and products, it's like you hand it to them, but you already did that with medium. Like I don't make that much money off of my book. So it's yeah. like, do you really need like a book book? Or and you can, can you just you can't like iterate it as well? Like you can't yeah. iterate a book. That's, you can't iterate on it. Yeah, it's the biggest waterfall project ever. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, I'm coming back to. I guess I'm pretty good at giving my license, self license, not to do it all. So there is one other thing I've learned, Melissa. Every year, I tend to do one or two new talks towards the beginning of the year, and I am prolific. I mean, it's because I love building hacking, figuring out how to make a great presentation. But if you want to keep getting invited back, you need yeah. to do new stuff. You got to be fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I understand. Guys, um, I, I, we've got some great questions yeah. here, right? So I want to make a little bit, bit of time for that at the end, right? So in, in the guise of the culture one, how do you teach culture? That's an interesting question, I think, especially for both of you. Uh, you want to have a shot at that one first? Definitely I want to go first. Yeah, I also don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like, I, so I did a talk <laughs> called How to Define a World-Class Culture. And the model is you have to work to define, edit, and then live these values over time. It's a forever process. Somebody in the comments could find it. It's how Netflix built a world-class culture. It's worth watching. It is a long-term investment. There's two excellent role models. One, of course, is Netflix. And the other one is Amazon's leadership principles. Read both and you'll get a sense of, frankly, how hard it is. And my the thing I'm fighting are the kind of watered-down phrases that get put on a piece of paper. They get sealed, you know, and they're near the water cooler and they're kind of vanilla. And you'll notice that neither Amazon nor Netflix are that. My short answer is spend an hour watching that one talk. Uh, yeah, no. What is culture? It is the skills and behaviors you expect of all of your employees. And mm -hmm. frankly, the CEO has to be very invested in it because yep. they are the role model. And then yep. the exec team over time becomes the role model for this behavior as well. I'll say Gib also talked about this on our podcast episode together on the Product Thinking Podcast, if you're interested in, in listening, a little plug. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, all of this resonates, though, with the studio because we're building this at the moment, right? Like role modeling, the what you say. Yeah, uh, it's hard. You know, there's no two ways about it. But it's a really good one. Here's a question from Linda: Does too much autonomy hold you back from taking a crack at new goals, especially if it's unfamiliar, scary, or different? Right, Melissa, you're nodding. Have a have a go at that one. I think it does. Like I had to give up autonomy to learn new things. But that doesn't mean you can't get it back. Like I said, I think about my uh, my career as it's probably going to be like autonomy, less autonomy, and then more autonomy as you go. And Margaret said life begins at 60. I hope not because I've got a little ways to go then. <laughs> but I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, I hope I am exactly like where Gib is when I'm his age. And like right now though, I, I think about it where I'm like, do I want to give up my autonomy right now to go in-house somewhere for a while. And I probably will. I'm not doing it this year. Nobody ping me with a bunch of job opportunities today because I'm not going to take them. But like, I think about that a lot. And I, I do think I'll go take on new challenges to learn new things 
and give up that autonomy. Otherwise, it can feel stagnant. And I also, I feel like you get into the trap Barry was talking about. If you have full autonomy over all the things that you do, and like he's killing himself right now, and this is what happened to me when I burnt out, I felt like I was the only one responsible for my success and it was never enough, right? So I, when you have full autonomy, you are the one who makes or breaks it. So I'm the type of person where I'm always like, I can do better, I can do more, I can work more hours, I can make yeah. more, I can do that. And not having those guardrails of a traditional job or anything around that, I would break myself into pieces because I knew it was only me at the end of the day. Like I didn't have a team, it was just me. And that is what also burnt me out. So I feel like life is made up of ebbs and flows in everything. And for me, autonomy is probably one of those things that I would trade up to a certain point. Like there's definitely some non-negotiables in what's required of me and my time in what I would do in the future. But like, I would trade some of that to learn new skills for sure. Yeah, wicked. All right. Etienne has a good one. Sort of ties in again. How do you decide when to stop? <laughs> it's, it's really hard. <laughs> That's like, why, why, how I uh, that? yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> well, I, oh, maybe I'll have a go at this one yeah, first too as well, because that sort of what feel like I'm living a bit at mm-hmm. the moment. You know, you wake up, you get people out the door, start your day, do your day, pick them up dinners, put them to sleep, then do the email at night. You know, it's almost like you talk day shift, night shift type stuff, right? But, and the way is the question I'm wondering if the question is like a year ago I was thinking about stopping my teachable self paced yeah. product strategy. Oh course, yeah. And Maybe that's I gave it the patience of another year. Do you know how much time you have to get the question? Yeah, well, Etienne, if you want to clarify, we'll we'll do that. But that's I'll happily answer how to know when to stop as well, right? Because yeah. I think it's really hard. It is, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I stopped consulting, and it took me a very long time to figure that one out because that is how I made my money for a long time. So being like, oh, you're going to give up like the way you make money and try something yeah. new, like that was nerve wracking as hell when I decided to full on stop, and it took me. A long time to do it, but I woke up every single day, like Barry was talking about, where he's w- waking up energized. I woke up every day not energized. There was a period where I took 147 flights a year. I cried on the way to the airport. I will admit this. I'm in the back of the Uber, like crying on the way to the airport because I was like, I don't want to get on another plane again. And I was really bad at setting boundaries and limits for myself. And I looked at it and I said, maybe one day I'll go back into consulting, but never the way that I did it before. But I said, I can't do it right now. This is not what I need. And there's other ways that I can actually like achieve my purpose. And I should try those. So it's like a weird, it's like, when is it time to start something new? So for me, like that was the time to start something new. Like what, what should I be doing? I went to Harvard instead. I learned a bunch of new stuff. It was really great. Gave up some of my autonomy. But I instead, I learned a bunch of stuff. Met a bunch of new people. Got that type of experience. And then I started to really double down on classes and teaching instead of consulting. And I realized like, okay, that's what I need right now. So I wish I listened to myself sooner in some retrospects, but I feel like I never would have listened or said yes in some retrospects. Or I would have been like, what am I missing if I got out of it earlier? But that was my thoughts on that. Because I think Barry, you stopped consulting too and went into... Yeah. When did you decide you were like, no more consulting? The signal was, you know, I was sitting there and I could sense that I was not showing up 100%, right? Like I was on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the warning signal where I'm like, I'm in rinse and repeat mode here. I'm not learning. I'm not outside my comfort zone. And then somebody and the sense of missing building, those two feedback mechanisms in a way were what made me go, right, I'm going to change my path, basically. You know, it's been great. It's like I say, it's hard, but I'm alive. 
saying no to consulting work is again a thing I transitioned. I didn't just like cut off my arm on the day and said I'm never taking another phone call again. I've actually been able to sort of dial one down as I turn one up, right? And mm-hmm. that dial went from 80-20 to one direction to the other now, right? And I still love giving talks. They're fun. I still do love doing these things. Um, I learn a lot. So yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's been great. I have this sort of theory that for me, like when I was running product, I would do it for four or five years and then move on to the next. And I think at four or five years, it started to feel a little been there, done that to me which compelled me to try something new. Or in some cases, I was no longer going to be the right person to take the company to the next stage. Anyways, sometimes I I wonder about that for myself. Am I as motivated to do a new talk? Now I know I can do it. Like three or four years ago, like, can I do a new talk? I have no freaking idea. (laughs) So when the learning opportunity starts to drop, sometimes it's a signal to me that I need to try something new. It just might be idiosyncratic. It might just be me. I don't know. It's true. Like, you know, I'm the same way where it's like, I was like, I'm not learning anything new. I'm regurgitating the same thing over and over and over again. And some of the consulting when I was killing myself, I was learning so much stuff. So it felt somewhat worth it, but my health took a toll, but it got to an unsustainable point. And that's when I was like, I need to stop and figure out how to learn other ways. But when you stop learning and you're on autopilot, I think that's a pretty good signal. All right. We're nearly at time. So I just... Maybe one takeaway everybody would like to share. Right, Melissa, one takeaway you'd like to share with the group? I think the big one is, I don't know, my big takeaway from this and from what I'm thinking about right now is like scale versus impact. And then also like autonomy versus not autonomy. So I think life is a series of evolutions with those types of things. So I'd think about like, do you care about scale versus impact? And how do you balance those two things? And then how do you think about your own autonomy versus giving some of that up to go learn more. That's my big thing is like making sure I keep those in balance as I go. Nice. All right, Kim? You know, mine's pretty personal, which is it was amazing for me to discover that Melissa had the same issues with her voice. Yeah. It's been a chronic problem for me for a year. So I definitely want to follow up with her. The second is I listened to you, Barry, and you gave me credit for some thought or feedback that I might have given you six months or 12 months ago. Yeah. And I was kind of chuckling. It's like, I probably didn't. This is the kind of forum that just helps you to discipline your thinking and to really to listen to yourself. And that's why I like these personal board of directors meetings. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're, they're great. Like they'd be massively helpful for me and both yourself and Melissa, again, massively helpful having these conversations. Yeah, I think maybe for myself, I'm just excited to see where we go with this venture studio. So, you know, if you're a budding product manager, designer, or engineer, and you want to come and build some amazing companies from the ground up, go check out nobodystudios.com and maybe join us for our crowdfunding in a couple of weeks' time too as well. It'd be awesome. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years. And who knows how many beyond that? 
So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.